You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on September 3rd, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. I'm back in my usual environment here. Um, and looks like we have some questions saved up from a previous time. So let me try and look at a few of these. All right, here's a slightly different one from Atore. What do I think of psychological personality tests and what type am I? So interesting. You know, people are different. They react to the world differently. How we come to be different is an interesting question. That is probably a mixture of nature, sort of how we are constructed and our genetics and nurture, how we end up growing up. And um, one of the things that people have been doing for about 100 years now is having these uh, kind of tests where you say, uh, answer these questions and then characterize sort of what personality type are you based on these questions? And so a really common one is the Myers-Briggs test, which I think are based on things from a psychologist called Carl Jung from, from sometime in the, in the early part of the 1900s. Um, but in any case, the, um, uh, usually people are sort of characterized with these four letters, like I'm typically... You know, if I do these things, I'll typically be an ENTJ. I'm not sure I can remember what all the letters mean, but the E is extrovert. So each, each one of these attributes, there's one, uh, there's two possible values. You can either be an extrovert or an introvert. And I'm afraid I can't necessarily remember what the other ones are. Um, but uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, there's some people like kind of me who tend to, in a situation, I will express myself, I'll kind of be out there, you know, talking to people. If I'm uh, with people I don't know, I'll typically be, hello, let me introduce myself type thing. That's kind of the typical extrovert story. The introvert story tends to be more, let me keep it to myself. If, you know, if there's a situation where it's like, I could go and just say, hello, I'm pleased to meet you type thing versus I could just stay away and uh, wait for somebody else to come and say hello to me, that tends to be the introvert type thing. And so it's kind of a question of what are you really measuring? What's really going on in these situations? Well, it's pretty clear that different people have different personality types. Can we really characterize the personality types that people have in terms of, let's say, you know, four letters each with two possible values? So that's... Um, uh, you know, 16 possible uh, overall personality types, so to speak. Does that really work? Are there really 16 kinds of people? Or is that just a terribly coarse approximation and perhaps even a misleading one? I don't think anybody knows. I think that uh, it's a little bit like trying to characterize things like emotions, you know, happy versus sad, this versus that. People have tried to make some characterization of the kind of space of possible emotions. I was going to say human emotions, but I don't need to say human emotions because we know, it's a famous work of Charles Darwin's actually, that uh, dogs, let's say, uh, express, seem to have emotional responses, not completely different from humans. And they even, you know, they have, they, they, they do things equivalent to smiles and growls and things with their, with their mouths that aren't that different from what we humans do. And so the question then is, is there a sort of space of possible emotions? Uh, how, how detailed is it? And so on. With emotions, we have some vague idea that perhaps the levels of different neurotransmitters in our brains are related to different emotional states. And while in our brains there might be, you know, uh, uh, 100 billion neurons that are all doing different things, it could be that some characteristics of emotions are more a feature of these kind of uh, sort of uh, these these chemicals that sort of wash through our brains to have an overall effect rather than the detailed characteristics of, of individual neurons and so on. 
And it's conceivable that the different neurotransmitters, of which there are comparatively small number, might have something to do with these different dimensions of sort of emotional response. It's not clear if that's correct. When it comes to personalities, I think it's, it's you know, one might wonder, is it the case that sort of personalities are associated with some perhaps physical aspect of the brain? It used to be the case 100 years ago or more, a little bit more than 100 years ago, there was this strange subject of phrenology. And the idea of phrenology was based on the shape of somebody's head, you could tell aspects of that person's personality. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because there are these kind of ideas in science, which at the time, everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, this is right. And subsequently, people are like, that was just a stupid idea. How could anybody have thought that that was right? And, and you would have these things, there would be these little models where people would, you know, a model of sort of a, a head where you'd mark off the different regions that corresponded to this or that thing. And in the end, it was a quite discredited uh, kind of uh, concept. Uh, it's, I'm not completely sure what sort of scientific work was done to fully discredit it, but it sounds a bit goofy at least. In any case, the question would be if you have different personality types um, that you could measure like extrovert versus introvert or something, which seems to be a somewhat real thing because one knows just from, from sort of anecdotal experience that there really are different kinds of people with respect to that. Uh, I'm not sure that it's you're either an extrovert or you're an introvert. It's more that's kind of a scale and it might depend on which day of the week it is, which one of those you were, uh, any particular person is, is more into. But one can sort of imagine that that's a thing. Now the question is, if you've got a brain you say, is this an extrovert or an introvert? How would you tell? Nobody knows right now. Uh, there's, there's, uh, the, the sort of the, uh, so far as I know, there's no known correlate of these sort of personality types that can be seen in kind of the structure of the brain. I'm not even sure if, so it's possible using uh, fMRI, functional machine, uh, magnetic resonance imaging um, uh, technique where you're basically looking at the amount of energy use in different parts of the brain using, using an imaging device. And so you can kind of get this map of what part of the brain is most active now. And that's the thing where lots of people have done lots of experiments on, you know, when you are doing this particular task, what part of the brain is most active? When you are thinking about this particular kind of thing, what part of the brain is most active? And I don't know of correlates of that with these sort of personality types and so on. So another question would be, if you just try and you know, ask people questions. How do you respond in this situation? Are you one of these people who prefers to take charge of a group of people or are you prefer to be the person who's told what to do? Are you a person who will uh, uh, prefers to sort of uh, invent your own way of doing things versus um, uh, have um, uh, follow what people say one should do? All these kinds of things. You know, there's these kind of surveys you can take. And a question would be, if you do those kinds of surveys and you ask the question, if you, for any given person, they will answer certain things in those surveys, probably they'll be fairly consistent. I'm not sure how consistent, I think fairly consistent, probably over uh, by, the time they're, uh, by the time they're teenagers to much later, they're probably, it's probably quite consistent what people answer um, for any given person. So you've answered all these things and that sort of, puts you, you say, you're a person who answered this, 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 for all these different questions. And you can say, in this sort of space of possible personality types, where does that put you? So in a, in a sort of mathematical sense, let's say there are 100 questions, and each one has a whole scale of answers from, from zero to one, let's say. That's like you have uh, coordinates in a 100-dimensional space for where are you in this 100-dimensional in this space, where one of the coordinate directions is introvert, extrovert. Another one might be, um, uh, I think one of these other ones is, um, oh my gosh, uh, judgmental versus something else I'd forgotten. Um, but anyway, so, so is another one of these sort of personality uh, parameters, but, but you could just almost take it from the direct answers to the questions. Um, you could just say, where do you, where do you, uh, you know, what were your answers to questions that puts you in one point in the sort of question answering space? Now the question would be, let's say you take a billion people, you ask them all these questions, and you say you've got all these points for all these different people and how they answered, and they're in different places in this kind of space of answers. Then the question would be, 
does that cluster in some way? Is it the case that there are, there are a whole bunch of people who answer more or less the same way over here, and then there are a whole separate bunch of people who answer more or less the same way over here with big gaps in between, with big places where there aren't any people who answer the questions in this combination of ways. It's always this combination or that combination. So it's the sort of the question of what is the, what's the structure of the space of personalities? And I was curious about this at one point, actually. I, I um, uh, almost had a chance to, to really study this because um, it was a company that was a, a large um, dating site which had asked people, oh, in aggregate, billions of questions. And um, uh, this was quite a number of years ago when sort of machine learning was just getting started. And uh, we had been talking to them about using some machine learning technology that we were developing to just analyze this data. And to me, that would have been an interesting thing to look at because with these billions of, of answers, you might've been able to answer this question. Do, is there a continuous range of sort of personality types based on question answering, or are there clumps of personality types? If there were clumps of personality types, it makes it much more seem like, oh, there's, you know, people either have this feature of their brain or that feature of their brain, not a continuous variation between them. I mean, it's, it's like in our anatomy in general, the people, you know, everybody is slightly different with different heights, with different, uh, you know, we have different ratios of lengths of fingers. We have all kinds of different, um, uh, different characteristics. And if you look kind of internally to us, there'll be people who have, you know, oh, there are two branches of this artery in this place. Oh, there are three branches of this artery in this place and so on. We all have certain differences, but some of them are kind of discrete differences. Like you either got the two artery branch version or you got the three artery branch version and they're definite different things. And there isn't like the two and a half artery branch version. And so one could imagine that some similar things would be true about brains. Brains are very, very diverse. And you know, one might think like fingerprints are a typical way of, of having something where different people have somewhat different fingerprints. Fingerprints are formed by kind of a folding process during embryonic develop development, uh, similar to a little bit to how ears are formed. And both of those things, once you are folding differently, you... Uh, you end up with, in the end, very different looking fingerprints, so to speak. So the, uh, the question is, how different are brains relative to fingerprints? And the answer is, they're very different. When if you look at brains, they're, they're just their structure of sort of the folds and, and ways that they're formed are just really different from person to person. And so, you know, does that have an effect? Is that the new phrenology? I don't know. Um, People have been sort of collecting, um, collecting brains. The collections aren't really huge yet um, to, to try and analyze things like differences of, the, of these types. Um, I think that uh, uh, that's so. Uh, that there, are, there are still many mysteries here. And I think um, there's this question of, of kind of, are there distinctly different personality types, or is it sort of a continuous range of different kinds of responses to things? And also, how much does it differ day to day, so to speak? You know, when you, when you fill out these tests of what would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? Well, it may be different from day to day, and I don't know how much variation there is along those lines. So that's um, it's a little bit of response to, to that. Let's see. Um, Ah, okay, somebody's pointing out that um, uh, the ENTJ classification, the N stands for intuitive, which intuitively starts with an N, I suppose. The T stands for thinking, and the J stands for judging. Hmm. Okay, uh, and uh, Parmenides is commenting, ENTJ is the CEO personality type. Hmm, interesting. See, that's another interesting question, is uh, given... You know, if you look at different activities that people have, how does that map into personality type? And which comes first, the personality type or the activity? I mean, it could be that if for whatever reason you back into being a CEO, you end up being sort of nurtured into the ENTJ personality type, let's say. Or it could be that being the ENTJ personality type is what leads you to even consider 
doing the CEO thing because otherwise you'd, um, uh, uh, you know, if you if you're very, um, uh, you know, doing the CEO thing, you know, some part of that is you've got to kind of be in charge, do leadership kinds of things, and and there are definitely personality types where people are very uh, don't like that at all. Um, I mean, I have to say, I'm I tend to be of the personality type as revealed by the the ENTJ-ness, I suppose, that um, the personality type where if I'm in the opposite situation, where I'm being led, I don't like that at all. So it's, uh, you know, different people have different, um, uh, different characteristics in that regard. So um, common question here from Icy about is replication a necessary criterion for the validation of a scientific experiment? Um, well, let's explain what that means even. So, you know, one of the things, when you report some result in science, like you say, I don't know, if I give you this vaccine, it stops you getting this disease, let's say, or some more basic science result about, I don't know, um, something about this particular um, when a, when two black holes collide, they uh, merge in this or that way. Any of these results in science. The, the first sort of question is, can one tell from, can one do an experiment to answer the question of what happens when? I, I don't know. Let's pick another example. Let's say if you've got a, um, uh, a plant that's growing. This is a classic experiment. Let me see if I can remember how this works. Um, you've got something like a, a um, yeah, okay, let, let's do a really simple kind of thing. Let's say, how does the horn of a rhinoceros grow? Okay, one possible answer is the end of the horn just keeps getting longer. Another possibility is at the, at the place where the horn attaches to the head of the rhinoceros, more horn is added, being added in that place. And so the question is, which of these things is actually true? And so you might do an experiment. You might put a mark on the horn of the rhinoceros and see how that mark moves as the horn grows. That might be an example of an experiment you might do. And so the question then is, well, you could do that experiment on one rhinoceros at one time, and you might discover this thing happened. And then you say, but is it a repeatable? Is it a reproducible experiment? If I do the same thing on another rhinoceros, will I get the same result? Or is it that one rhinoceros grows its horn in this way and another rhinoceros grows its horn in that way and it's not a reproducible experiment? Um, so a big thing, and this is kind of, a, a kind of an idea from the early days of, of uh, thinking about doing science experiments. I mean, it's worth saying that historically in the development of theoretical science, the idea of doing experiments wasn't really well formalized for a very long time. I mean, people, I think, thought when, if you say, how does the world work? And people were thinking about that a couple of thousand years ago in, in ancient Greece or something like this, a lot of the answer to let's figure out how the world works is let's just think about it. We can see various things happening in the world now that we've seen those things, we've observed what happens. Now let's just sit and think and figure out why does that happen? And that's how we do it. Now, the idea that arose particularly, I would say, by the, by the 1500s and 1600s was this idea of, no, don't just sit back and look at how the natural world works and then start thinking through why it does what it does. Instead, do experiments, actually set things up and say, if I do this thing, then what will happen? And if I do another thing, then what will happen? And deduce how the world works by doing experiments that you've set up where you say, I want to see what happens if this or that happens. Okay, so some experiments are very easy to make reproducible. Let me give an example that is in uh, not about the natural world, but about the kind of computational mathematical world. Let's say you say something like, uh, well, very, very, something like there's some, um, this particular number is, um, uh, has this particular characteristic. You know, you say 27 is three cubed. Okay, 
well, that's, you know, you might say that once, but it's, it's trivial to reproduce that experiment. You can do the multiplication again, you can do it again, you can do it a different way, you'll always get the same answer. Now in physics, there is uh, up to a point, a decent ability to have reproducible experiments, just because one imagines one can set up, the, a physical system has sort of, has cut and dried enough characteristics. You can really say, I want to make it exactly the same this time versus the next time. Now, there are some, some caveats to that. For example, let's say you're dealing with something where it matters, you're dealing with a gas. The gas has molecules. The molecules are bouncing around in this seemingly quite random way, which is associated with kind of, uh, that, and that the rate at which they're bouncing around is associated with temperature and heat and so on. Whenever you have kind of lots and lots of molecules bouncing around and, and uh, implementing heat, basically, you have a situation where you, in a typical experimental setting, you don't know where every molecule is. You just know in the aggregate, they're roughly like this. And so that means when you do the experiment, it can matter that the molecules in that particular time you did that experiment were arranged in exactly this or that way. And so you get this result. And if they were arranged differently, you get a different result. But that's not something you're controlling in the setup of your experiment. It gets even worse in quantum mechanics in the theory of sort of individual electrons and, and small particles and so on, because in quantum mechanics, there is in a sense a sort of fundamental randomness to what happens. We think we know now from our fundamental theory of physics that we've developed in the last couple of years, uh, a lot more about exactly why this happens and how this works. But the, the observed feature is that in quantum mechanics, there aren't definite things that happen. There are many different possible things that can happen. And we, when we observe how the experiment came out, with a certain probability, we get this result versus that result. So the idea of a reproducible experiment in quantum mechanics is just kind of out the window. Because in quantum mechanics, the way we think it now works is actually our universe has many different possible branches of history. Many different things can be happening in the universe. And what is going on, it's a little bit of a brain twisting thing, is the universe is kind of branching into all these possibilities. So are our brains branching into all these possibilities. And so the kind of issue is, how does a branching brain perceive a branching universe? And it can happen in different ways, leading us to conclude that there's a different result from any particular measurement. And so, but that process of kind of how our brains sort of align with the universe, so to speak, in making a particular measurement, that process is not something we can control for in our experiment. And so there is, in, in some very th theoretical sense, there is no reproducibility in quantum mechanics because that is to get reproducibility, you have to control all aspects of things. And that aspect is something that with the way that we exist in the universe, we are simply not in a position to control. It is not self-evident that we are the only way you can exist in the universe. And in fact, although I think it's a fundamental feature of our kind of uh, consciousness and our kind of perception of things like the fact that we have the notion of a definite thread of experience over time, those features of us, which are pretty central to the way that we work, those features of us force you into the situation where quantum mechanics is, at least for us, not perceived as reproducible. And so that means that the idea of reproducibility in experiments, as soon as we're dealing with quantum mechanics, basically the existence of consciousness and a definite thread of experience and so on, forces us to not have access to the things we'd need to have access to in order to make quantum experiments reproducible. Now, if you say, well, how can you conclude anything about quantum mechanics? The answer is that although you can't say what the outcome of any particular quantum experiment will be, you might be able to say the probability very accurately. You might be able to say exactly 60% of the time it will do this. And well, what does that really mean? That means if you ran the experiment a million times, roughly 600,000 times it would do this, but it isn't exactly 600,000 times. Whenever you say there's a certain probability of something, it just means on the average, in the long run, that will be the frequency of time something happens. It doesn't mean in any particular thing that you do that you'll get that result. So a, a, a characteristic example of that is coin tossing. If you say, you know, if you have a, an unbiased coin, half the time it will come up heads, half the time it will come up tails. But if you say, 
you do an actual experiment where you toss the coin a bunch of times and you say, well, what's the result? You'd say, well, it should be 50-50, 50% heads, 50% tails. But any particular experiment you do, it won't be exactly 50% heads and 50% tails. It will have some sort of random walk fluctuation around that value. And so sometimes, let's say you actually observe that it was 70% heads. After you did 100 experiments, it came out 70% heads. You would say, so then the question would be, uh, and assume that this coin was sort of tossed randomly each time. Well, you would say, what does it mean that it came out 70% heads? Does that mean that actually this coin is biased? Does that mean we know for sure the coin is biased? Or what does it really mean? Or is that just bad luck? And if we just kept on flipping the coin more, it would even out and eventually it would be 50-50. That's a complicated question. That's a sort of central question of statistics. This question of if you see that it is 70% heads, what does it mean? What does that mean for, for example, the probability that the coin is a biased coin? This all relates to a thing called Bayes' theorem, which is sort of a way of, of backing out. Given what you saw, what can you tell about what was going on in the, in the model underneath? And the end result of, of kind of thinking about that is it's, it's ultimately you can't get something for nothing. And ultimately, to answer the question I just answered about what I just asked about what does that mean for the coin? In the end, you have to have an underlying model for what possible coins could be produced. You can't answer the question I just posed without knowing something which is sort of a, a further back issue, which is imagine that you have a lot of different coins, what fraction of them are biased in what way? If you, if you can answer that, the so-called prior, a priori uh, kind of um, uh, assumptions, if you can answer that, then you can go from the observation, oh, we saw 70% heads or something, to what the chance that the coin is biased would be. But you never get something for nothing. You always have to have some sort of fundamental assumption down there. But in any case, so, so one reason that there can be science, even when an indefinite quantitative results, that are these kinds of results that say with probability X, such and such will happen. But that's not gonna be a perfectly reproducible experiment. That's gonna be an experiment that is somehow statistically reproducible. Okay, now here's where things get really difficult. When you go into, for example, biology, um, and you say, can you make a reproducible experiment in biology? Well, that gets quite difficult because you know, every, every time you do the experiment, you know, every mouse has, a slightly different state. You know, even if, and people do this a lot to breed genetically identical mice that they keep in these giant, very automated mouse colonies for, for in labs and so on, they, they breed these mice that are genetically identical. But even genetically identical mice aren't absolutely identical. It depends, what did the mouse do that day? Did the mouse eat this? Did the mouse do that? It's never precisely controllable how things work. And so that makes it much more difficult to do biology experiments and to know, you know, you say, well, I did this on 10 mice and I got the same result each time. But the, and then I do it on an 11th mouse and oh, by, it's different. What happened? Well, it, if sometimes if you can figure it out, you can say, well, the reason it was different is because that mouse was older than the other mice. Or the reason it was different is because that mouse had gone through this maze the day before and done this or something. Um, but it's very hard usually to figure out what it was that was different. And, and this spites one incredibly strongly in medicine because you know, us humans are not all genetically identical unless we happen to have identical twins or something. And we have many differences both in our genetics and in our, uh, you know, what have we eaten all of our life? What exercise have we taken all of our life? What experiences have we had all of our life? We have lots of differences. And so when you say we're going to test this particular medicine on people and say, does it work? Does it not work? Well, it might depend on a lot of things. And teasing out, for example, the, the, the sort of the definitive science question, does it work, is a really hard thing to answer. Because the answer might be, well, it works with people who have this characteristic and that characteristic, but not this characteristic. And there are so many characteristics that people might or might not have that it's really difficult to do that experiment. You might have to, I mean, I suppose that in, um, uh, in things like the vaccines that are, are going on right now, 
there's literally billions of people getting these vaccines. And so those are, have the capability to be, in a sense, as good bi biology experiments as pretty much you'll ever get. I mean, you can do experiments on at the level of cells where you can probably sample even more cells than we have humans sampled in this particular case. But the, you know, the question will be, well, what can you actually conclude? You know, how does this work and that work and so on? And the answer tends to be, it's really quite complicated. And the notion of a pure outright, it's a reproducible experiment is not so much of a thing. And it's a difficult thing because for example, let, let's give an example of how this impacts the world at large. So if you're gonna say there's a drug, some drug company has produced it, you're gonna say, is this a good drug or not? So then what you do is the, the basic standard of how that's figured out these days is to do a clinical trial. You say, we're gonna give some people the drug, we're gonna give some people not knowing that they didn't get the drug, we're gonna give them a placebo where they, they, they might've got the drug, but they didn't actually get the drug. We're gonna have these two different groups of people and we're gonna see, did the drug do really good things for people who got it and did nothing interesting happen for the people who didn't get it? And if the answer is the drug did really well for the people who got it and uh, the things that, that did well for the people who got the drug didn't happen for the people who got the placebo and the people who got the drug didn't have some horrible side effect and so on, then we say, great, we've got a drug that works, now go feed it to another billion people. Okay, so now the problem is what tends to happen is that, well, it works on some people, it doesn't work on other people. It has side effects for some people. It doesn't have them for other people. Okay, what do we conclude? One thing we might conclude is as soon as anything goes wrong, we might say, forget it, we're out of here. This drug is a failure. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. But the truth of the situation is a little bit more of the reproducibility of experiments question. It is probably the case that the people, if the drug worked on some people, but failed on others, gave side effects on others, that really there's different characteristics of those people. It's not just pure chance that, oh, well, you know, it so happened that this happened. It's just chance. It's, it's undoubtedly not chance. It's undoubtedly because the person who had the side effect is a person who has a different, uh, you know, slightly different version of this enzyme that came from their genetics that blah, 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 whatever else. But the question is, can you tease that out? Can you figure out that there's that kind of thing? And one of the things people hope is that in the future, there will be a much more personalized version of medicine where perhaps this particular drug with this particular, which is a particular molecule with a particular shape and so on, it'll be like, well, for you, we need a modified version of that molecule. It has this extra few atoms in this place because the place it's going to bind inside your body is, you know, is for genetic reasons has a slightly different configuration. So we need to give you this sort of personalized changed molecule for this drug. Now, the question is, if you say, well, we're gonna test, you know, for drugs to be okay, we're just gonna test them using this on off, it works, it doesn't work kind of approach. That's a very difficult thing to do if everybody gets a custom version of a drug um, and quite how that's going to be worked through because obviously one doesn't want to just say, oh, just do whatever you want. It's, you know, because all sorts of terrible things will happen. Um, but then the, the question is, how do you essentially validate a, a, um, a whole kind of algorithm for producing drugs? Or even more than that, if the drugs themselves are molecules, which when they go into your body, actually start algorithmically as a molecule doing computations and reconfiguring themselves and so on. It's like, you know, the, the molecule goes in as a generic molecule, but when it's inside you, when it detects that there's some particular kind of cell, it modifies in this way and so on and so on and so on. How do you validate that, that all the right things are going to happen? And uh, uh, to some extent, issues like that have been addressed in medical devices a bit, but not completely. Um, and I think that's a sort of a challenging thing. And it would be a, a real, real shame if a lot of things that would be super helpful medically just can't be done because nobody can figure out the kind of reproducibility of experiments story in a way that, that everybody's happy with um, for, for, those kinds of, um, uh, for, for those kinds of things. Oh, this is some, coming back to um, uh, earlier question here about personality types from Atore wondering if personalities are clustered and wondering if there are data sets available on this. 
the data set that we uh, sort of almost had access to from this uh, dating site, I think was sort of the biggest one. At the, at the time, that was really the biggest realistic such data set. Um, uh, and I, I think that's the kind of place such data sets would have been collected is, um, uh, is those kinds of places. Yeah, there's a question here about um, from Slayer, I'm afraid uh, about a, a, a weird medical phenomenon, a chap called Phineas Gage, who had a very unfortunate accident that caused a giant rod to get um, go through his his brain, and um, uh, I don't know all the all the um, characteristics of what happened. You know, one of the general principles about medicine is, you know, you think there's a kind of cut and dried answer to something. You know, if you destroy this part of the brain, it's all over or something, and then you find, oh, but there's an exception. Here's a person who survived this particular thing, or here's a person where this characteristic just worked in a different way. With respect to the brain, and uh, one of the big questions about the brain is if you sort of look at a brain, it has a complicated structure, you know, you can just see it has a complicated structure, but also each different part of the brain is quite specialized in what it does. You know, there's a piece that, that is controlling, you know, there's a, there's a definite area that controls the muscles in your, you know, left index finger or something. There's a definite area that controls, you know, kind of the, um, uh, what you see in this part of your visual field and how you do the first levels of a vision from this part of your visual field. There's a definite part of your brain that is associated with, for example, language. Well, one of the things that happens is some things are in pretty fixed locations, uh, like the things to do with movement, the things to do with sight, they're in pretty fixed locations. The things like how you understand language, that, that moves around a bit between different people. But there's sort of a big question of to what extent is the brain retargetable in what it does? That is, if, you, if some part of your brain fails in some way, you know, let's say you have a a stroke and that part of your brain is deprived of oxygen and those cells die, or you have some nasty concussion and you kind of tear apart a bunch of nerve, nerve cells and so on, all definitely bad things to do. But um, uh, you know, when, when that happens, is it the case that some other part of the brain can kind of come in and take over the functions that were being done by the part of the brain that was damaged? And the answer seems to be, well, to some extent, yes, uh, particularly if it happens, uh, you know, if the damage occurs when one's very young, then it is, it is often the case that one can uh, sort of have other parts of the brain come in and uh, take over those functions and all is good, so to speak. It's sort of interesting that that's possible because there's sort of the question of one might have thought a brain is a carefully sort of controlled machine where every piece does a definite thing and each piece is necessary for some aspect of how we operate. But the kind of the big thing that was discovered that's sort of the foundation of the idea of software for computers is that you can have a device like a computer, which when you just feed it different software, it will do all these different kinds of computations. It will do all these different kinds of things. And so you might imagine that brains are a little bit the same idea, that is, that there's a fixed hardware, all of those 100 billion neurons and so on, but that depending on the software, depending on what actual memories are in the brain and so on, that you can have the brain do different kinds of things. And I think that it, it tends to look as if, uh, in many respects, the brain can be sort of rearranged and like this thing that was really most often does this for in people, can be made to do that in people instead. Clearly, when people have different senses, like for example, they you know they they don't have good vision, for example, they don't have good hearing. Those parts of the brain that were responsible for vision or hearing um, end up being you can use those neurons for something else. And so, a, a quite common experience is people who have difficulty with one of those senses. The other senses become more acute, and probably more neurons are recruited. To, to make use of those things than, uh, than would be otherwise. Um, so, so that's, um, uh, so I mean, I think this question of just how retargetable are different parts of the brain is an interesting one. 
And I don't think one really knows the full answer to that. Um, there will be other aspects of that question which will come in when we have, um, uh, if we have, when we have sort of better direct connections to the brain. You know, the brain is an electrical device in effect where all these neurons are producing electrical signals that they're transmitting to the neurons that they're next to and, and all those kinds of things. And so one of the questions is, can we just connect into that electrical network and just wire things into our brains? Well, that's something that's done as a, a sort of medical clinical thing, particularly in the case of Parkinson's disease, um, where the, um, I guess it's dopamine, uh, one of the neurotransmitters is, does not get produced as much as it normally would by the cells that normally produce it. And one of the ways to kind of fix things is to actually have a, a stimulator that is a, a, um, an electrical device implanted in the brain that, uh, and, and so that, that's a rather coarse example. And, and there are similar examples in things related to epilepsy, where there's sort of a, a let's recontrol what the brain does by feeding it electrical signals that will potentially uh, divert what it was otherwise going to do. Now, one can imagine a much finer version of that, and people do lots of experiments on this, trying to get something that's like, a, like the technology of microprocessors, sort of directly with all those detailed little wires and things, being able to directly connect to neurons in the brain and be able to sort of monitor, for example, have arrays of, of, of uh, electrodes that kind of monitor what's happening in many different uh, neurons in the brain. One day, we might be able to kind of pick up the kind of internal communications between neurons and the brain, uh, it will be not easy to decode that. I mean, the thing that's probably the more immediate thing and which I think there's been some success on is uh, things like in the spinal cord where one's using the a bundle of nerves that control uh, you know, all of one's movements and, and so on. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a question of can one, can one have an electrical device that is just sort of sees all of those nerve endings and can figure out which nerve is doing what and can produce its own version of that stimulation. And there's some degree of success nowadays with that kind of thing. But I think that the, um, the question is, if we were able to pick up, if we were able to monitor at a very fine level what's happening in all those electrical communications inside the brain, could we figure out what those communications are about? And if we were able to feed in new things, could we like let our brains directly do arithmetic for us without not, rather than arithmetic being done by our neurons, say, well, I'm just thinking about what is uh, 13 times 39 or something. And just by thinking about it, it would kind of the, the electrical connections would be, you, those thoughts would be decodable. And then you could just go off and, and ask your computer to do that computation and feedback the results. That's sort of a challenging, question to can we sort of can we can we detect that internal communication in the brain understand it and go back and and uh, and put something else in now now the thing to understand is that brains the communication between brains doesn't seem to be such a simple matter human language is the main way we have to communicate between brains and in a sense what's happening is you know as i'm yakking away here no doubt you know a billion neurons in my brain are doing all kinds of nerve firings and sending all kinds of electrical signals and so on. And the result is that I say foo or whatever. And the, then for you to hear that word, then that causes a bunch of nerve firings in your brain. And then that causes you to have certain thoughts within your brain that are based on other thoughts you've had and other things you remember and so on. And it's kind of in the, in the computer sense, it's sort of the API that we have between brains. The way of communicating brain to brain is human language. And we're sort of putting it into that we're taking the inner thoughts that we have, which involve nerve firings of, of billions of neurons and so on. And we're arranging those into this thing that is this essentially API, this communication channel that we're able to communicate to another brain. And the question is, is there a direct kind of brain to brain or or brain to machine kind of interface where you're not turning everything into this whole elaborate language. You're just looking at the level of kind of the individual nerve firings and so on. A slightly cautionary tale is what would happen with computers. If I opened up my computer and I put little wires and probes in different places in its CPU, and I said, what's going on here? It'd be pretty hard to tell. 
you know, back in the day, I have to say, I haven't tried this in years, but back a long time ago, like for like uh, 30, 40 years ago, if you took a radio, a standard kind of AM radio, and you put it next to a computer and the computer was doing things, the radio would go crazy because there are all these electromagnetic emissions from the electrical activity in the computer. And you'd be essentially hearing some version of what the computer is doing. But what you'd heard you know, with all the squawks and squeaks and this and that and the other, it's very hard to decode. Um, it's very much, and if you get down to the level of there's individual wires and there's individual values in this register in the CPU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, decoding what's going on, reverse engineering what's going on from that very low level representation is, is pretty difficult. And that's what we're kind of signing up for. If we say, well, we're going to take what happens in the brain and look at these individual nerve firings and so on and see what they mean. Now, it turns out machine learning, which is kind of an idealized version of, of how brains work, is probably one of the best shots we've got at going in and looking at these detailed, oh, there's this particular set of nerve firings. What does it mean? Um, that machine learning is basically, well, here are some examples of what it means. Then machine learning can kind of extrapolate from that and say, so in this different case that I'm seeing now, this is what it means here. So that's probably our best hope for being able to sort of decode the inner language of, uh, of, of brains, even though there might not be. We don't know to what extent there is an inner language. We don't know whether there's a level in between the me talking to you in English type thing and the level of individual neurons firing and, and doing what they do. We don't know if there's some way that there is a sort of an intermediate language where it's like not as beautifully formed as English, but not as just right down at the level of individual bits of the individual nerve firings. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, an interesting and fundamental challenge for neuroscience is to figure out, is there such an intermediate language? We don't know the answer yet. Let's see. Uh, well, there's a question here from Prath, Prathamesh, asking about AI politics and decisions. I'm not sure there's many different aspects to that, that, um, uh, that, those words. One of the things that, um, we might wonder about is when we set up machines, and the machines kind of, in some sense, decide what to do, how do we feel about that? So at some level, we, we, we have certain devices we build, and sometimes we can readily understand, we built this device, we move this lever in this way, the device is going to engage this wheel in this way, and it's gonna move in this way, and we can kind of see what's gonna happen. And we kind of know, we set this device up, we pull this lever, we know what's going to happen. If you pull the lever, you know what's going to happen. You're responsible for what happens if you pull that lever. All quite straightforward. Now let's imagine that in that loop is this complicated AI system that has all these things where it's a, it's a self-driving car and it's figuring out based on some very complicated algorithm and this and that and the other, is it going to swerve when it sees a, a deer jump into the road or not? And is it going to swerve? And if it swerves, does it swerve into another car? And how does that all work? And who is responsible for what goes on there? Now, one of the things you might say is, well, whoever wrote the program, they're responsible for what goes on there. But that's not a realistic thing to say, because we know that, I mean, my own work actually in this area is, is uh, kind of makes it clear that there's this phenomenon of computational irreducibility. That is, you write a program, the program specifies rules, but when you run those rules and you run the millions, billions of times or whatever, to know what consequences that will have is not something that you can foresee in advance. You just have to run it and see what happens. So you can't just sort of say, well, I'm going to make sure that my device never does the wrong thing. Look, I'm going to tweak this piece of code to make sure it never does the wrong thing. That's not realistic because knowing what it will do, there's this irreducible amount of computation that is involved in figuring out what it does in any particular case. And that's not something where you can just say, I'm gonna guarantee it's gonna do nothing bad. The next question is, what do you even mean by nothing bad? What do you mean in a, in a situation where you say, um, you know, is this thing going to successfully 
shut down this uh, giant motor or something. Well, that's a very well-defined objective. And you can say, did you succeed? Did you not succeed? If the question is, did this uh, self-driving car ever do the wrong thing, ever do something you didn't want it to do? That's a much more complicated question. Let's take an example that's a very fraught question, which is autonomous weapons. So you've got some drone running around and the drone has a gun and the gun can shoot at things. And the question is, under what circumstances should the, the drone shoot at something? And it's like you say, well, I've got certain rules. I don't want to do it in this case. I do want to do it in this case. But it's, it's impossible to specify with all different eventualities of what could happen. What if the, um, I don't know, you know, what if you say, uh, leave the animals alone? This is a problem between humans, but yet you have the trained killer pigeon or something. You know, what do you do in that case? The, um, it's, uh, uh, and all these different things where, where a human might say, well, based on my whole story of judgment of this and that and the other, I decide to do this. But this AI system has been set up with certain principles and so on, and it's, but it's not, uh, well, one of the worst cases is, let's say the AI system is just learned by, from examples. Let's say it had a thousand examples of what to do, and then it's out in the wild, and it's told, just go do the right thing based on those thousand examples. The problem is the thing that happens out in the wild may be so different from any of those examples, it has no idea what to do. And sometimes you don't even know it has no idea what to do because it just learned from those examples and it built up some whole sort of machine learning uh, sort of uh, idea of what to do. And it didn't, um, and you don't know that it doesn't know. And it doesn't know that it doesn't know um, because it just follows the principles that it's been operating according to. And it just, it ends up that, well, actually, if there'd been this critical extra example given, it would have done the right thing, but there wasn't, and it didn't know that there was a hole there, and you didn't know there was a hole there. Now, I tend to think that a better approach is computational contracts effectively for, for devices. What does that mean? That means something where, just like you would like a, write a legal contract where you write out in English or some other language or some kind of legalese, this is what I want to have happen in a way where, where both sides, both parties can read the document and say, yes, we think we know what this means. We think we understand it and therefore we can follow it. In the case of machine learning, for example, where you just say, let's learn by example, you don't really have that situation, at least not as directly. Um, you are in much better shape if you say, well, I'm going to write this computational language that is a thing that I can read and I understand what it says. And okay, now AI, go follow this principle that's a better situation to be in. Now, of course, you have to have a language that can express the kinds of concepts that are relevant for telling the AI, do the right thing. That's something that actually in, in our technology development over the last uh, 35 years or so on, um, we've, we've come a long way to having kind of a, a full-scale computational language that can kind of express all these different kinds of things in the world and ideas about what should happen in the world and so on. And so I think that's a, sort of a good direction for that. Um, but uh, um, it's, uh, let's see, I think that um, um, uh, well, let's see, Parmenides is commenting, how crazy would it be if politics becomes like hedging, where it's all run by algorithms? Vote for algorithm one for posterity. Algorithm three is tough on crime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of what, I'm sure that's basically what's going to happen. I mean, in a sense, that's the story of democracy. You know, you say, you might say, uh, you know, vote for party X, you know, but in a sense, you're voting for the algorithm of party X. You're voting for whatever, you know, or you might say, well, I'm voting for the character of, of party X. But in a sense, it's not as cut and dried as, there's this computational contract and this is what you're voting for. It's more, you're, you're, you're kind of proxy, you're, you're saying, I want things to be run according to the procedure that is associated with party X, 
or person Y or whatever else. And so in a sense, that's what's happening, except it's not implemented. It's implemented with a human system rather than a computational system. Now, the question is what happens if it is a computational system? What happens if, for example, you say, I'm voting for this computational contract. Okay, here it is. It's, uh, you know, it's 50 pages long. It is the description of what I want to have happen in the world, how I want the country to be governed or whatever else it is. And it is like a constitution, like the one that a country like the US and many countries in the world have, a constitution which is sort of supposed to be the foundation for kind of how the country is, is governed. Um, but in this case, rather than it being just a foundation, it's interpreted and it's got millions of pages of legal opinions and things that are, have been added to that sort of underlying set of principles, that instead you say, well, no, actually, it's just going to be this piece of code and that's it. And that's what decides what happens. And, you know, people will say, well, I don't like that piece of code. And maybe they have some democratic process where they say, we're voting out that piece of code. We want this piece of code instead. And people would argue, you know, they would draft a new piece of code and people would spend a long time kind of developing, you know, what, what is that, let's put an addendum to this piece of code that deals with this complicated situation and what happens if this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there might be three variants of it and people might vote, we want this variant versus this variant and so on, but it's all in the sense code. Um, is that a good situation? Well, is that, a, is that a situation that can and will happen? I'm sure it will happen. Um, and whether it happens in that rather transparent form or whether it happens in a much less transparent form where it's like, I vote for this and where this is a human system and that human system writes the code and then you're stuck with what the code does. But the, the point about code making decisions, that's inevitable. And that's already happening to a large extent. I mean, basically what, uh, you know, when decisions have to be made quickly or in bulk, whatever else, it makes it is completely impractical for humans to make those decisions, whether it's in, uh, let's say, in financial trading kinds of things. You know, should I buy this? Should I sell this? Oh, I'm doing it a thousand times a second. Well, no human is going to be able to do that. Or I, I'm taking in all of these signals for what I might buy and sell. Just like one might imagine, a lot of the kind of controls that governments have are, you know, they're, they're comparatively course. It's like, what are we going to do with interest rates? What are we going to do with money supply? These are levers that you turn, they don't get turned. You know, it's not like, it's not like an airplane flying where you see those little um, uh, things at the back of the wings that flap up and down, automatically controlled by a control system to try kind of keep the airplane flying in a in level flight or whatever. You know, it's not the case that in the financial system, at least in the government financial system, that there's a similar kind of rapid control system where something is kind of flapping, you know, every day doing this or that, at least not that I can think of. That certainly happens in the private sector of finance, but it does not happen in the public sector of finance, I believe. Um, and one can imagine a situation where, where people say, well, actually, we want that to happen. Install, you know, at the central bank, install this algorithm, basically, install this computational contract that's going to determine what the interest rates are, reset every second or something. Well, uh, you know, in those kinds of things, you can have a local version of that, or you can have something more global, where you say, this is the overall set of things we're trying to achieve, now optimize these thousand parameters. We'd never specify all those thousand parameters separately, but you can say, you know, you're setting up, oh, I don't know, tariffs on this, these goods and, and this particular tax on this thing and this particular whatever. Those are the current controls of government. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I happen to be a, the less controls there are from government, the better, but that's just a personal preference. Um, the, uh, uh, I think that um, uh, it's something, and, and um, no doubt, um, but, but uh, uh, it's something where, where um, you can you can kind of ask um, maybe that goes with the ENTJ personality type I don't know um, but uh, uh, that's another interesting issue is let's say you have a situation where you uh, that's a that's a bizarre possibility um, you know you've got something where you sort of are interacting between you know people with all their complicated preferences and all of their um, the um, 
uh, with them. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's 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 complicated. I'm getting a note here that reminds me I'm late for something, and it notes that it's a it's a meeting with an ISPFP, which is apparently the exact opposite of an ENTJ. So uh, so so it goes. Um, all right, maybe maybe um uh um do just there, there's there's lots more to say about um. Uh, about kind of um, the the interaction of AI with politics, with this and that. Um, I, I'm not a person who knows much about politics as such, but but um, the um, uh, the thing that I think is kind of the the challenge is in a situation where it is possible to have a finer delegation of things than just saying I vote for Party X where you can specify things in more detail with computational contracts and so on, what does that mean? And do you end up with, does every person effectively have their own political party where they say, I, I declare that I want the country to be run according to this computational contract. I wrote it, I started writing it in grade school. I kept on adjusting it my whole life. And this is my contract. This is what I want the world to be like. And now at the age of 40 or something, my contract is 8,000 lines long and it's got all this complicated cases for this and that and the other. This is what I want the world to be like. And you then imagine the situation where, okay, you collect everybody's you know, preferences and you put them all into some big machine and you say, okay, now figure out what to do. Because unfortunately, it is the nature of society and the world and the physicality of the world and so on that... Uh, you know, it's not possible to give everybody everything that they want. Um, and because sort of everybody has to live in the same space, so to speak, and interact and so on. And so then the question is, well, how do you optimize, given all these different preferences that came in, how do you come up with the optimum? And it's a little bit like what I was saying before with statistics, that in the end, there has to be a base, 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 base set of assumptions. Without that, you really can't resolve that question. And, and even with that, uh, it's like, for example, a, a very obvious question is, if there are things that will make 80% of the world really happy and 20% really unhappy, and whereas there are other things that will make uh, 60%, you know, 50% of the, uh, no, will make everybody reasonably happy. What is the trade-off between making 80% really, really happy and 20% really unhappy versus everybody's kind of happy, but not as happy as they would have been, not as unhappy as they would have been. Which of those is the better world? Which of those do you want to have happen? Now, people might put that very statement into their computational contracts. This is what we want for, for that balancing of things. But that's a very complicated infinite regress. And, and there won't be a resolution unless you somehow at the bottom of it say, this is what globally we decide wants to have happen. And you know, I think that's a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a feature, I suppose, I'm sure that there are echoes of this throughout the history of political philosophy. Um, and in a sense, we're pretty lucky that the world is set up so that it has, for example, multiple countries where different things can be done, different sort of core assumptions can be made. And I think it's, um, uh, so I mean, uh, and, and then there's the whole question which is, which again turns into all kinds of complicated politics about, you know, in in the world of the future. Let, let's imagine that we're all uploaded to some giant digital thing, and we don't have to worry about the physicality of do we move from country X to country Y physically in the physical world. It's all digital, and just by merely sort of the, a a puff of electrons, we could be transported into a different into a different environment. Um, you know, how then would, uh, you know, would you just say to people, well, just go to where you want to be? Of course, that doesn't work either, because it could be the case that, um, uh, you know, you end up in a situation where, where the world has to be maintained in some sense, and everybody wants to do this. Everybody wants to be a, um, I don't know, everybody wants to be a painter, and nobody wants to make the trains run. Well, that's not good. Uh, now, again, in some sort of sense of some sort of digital utopian something or other, 
where, where there is no physicality, there are no trains to be running, maybe you can, maybe there's a way to deal with that. Or even then I suspect it isn't the case. I suspect it's sort of inevitably the case that if everybody wants to paint and nobody wants to make the trains run, then uh, that's not a good situation. And then what do you do with that? And, and you're, you're thrust back into the same kind of complicated morass that, um, that is the sort of the long-term history of political philosophy. All right, well, that, that gets me into, um, uh, yeah, there are all kinds of interesting questions here, which I haven't had a chance to address this time, but that's okay because there'll be another time next week. Um, and uh, I should wrap up here for now. And I look forward to um, uh, seeing you again. Well, I wish I could see you all, but uh, at least um, um, in some sense being with you all, same time next week. All right, thanks very much, and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.